invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians uh, chapter 15, which we began last week, this glorious chapter on the resurrection. Uh, we will uh, uh, continue. Uh, we will look at the same verses, read the same verses that we read last week, but focusing on the second half of the passage, verses five through eleven. And so, uh, but just for context, I'll begin reading in verse one. So let us uh, once again give ear to the reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, beginning in verse one. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelfth. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the work of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, you'll recall that there were those in the church of Corinth that were denying the resurrection. Denying the fact that at the last day when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ will be raised and that our bodies will be transformed, glorified together with him. And the Apostle Paul, when he heard that there were those denying the resurrection, as he will go on to explain, that was striking at the very heart of the gospel message itself. In fact, it amounted to a denial of the gospel. And so... Before going into the specific topic of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul begins this chapter by reminding his readers, by telling them for the second time of the gospel message that he had declared unto them. And he summarizes that by using four different verbs. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. Now, the gospel, it's important to note, is not just a wax nose that we can mold however we like. It's not just good news in the sense that whatever we feel like the good news is, that's the gospel for us. No, but as Paul has been explaining, the gospel is a particular message with a particular content that was delivered from the Lord to the apostles and then from the apostles preached to the people of God. 
Most commentators will identify that there is perhaps an early Christian creed in verses 3 through 5 as the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel, that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. And while that may be true, this sort of early version of what eventually would turn into the Apostles' Creed, which we confessed today, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul is not done summarizing the gospel in verse 5. But he continues to summarize this message of the gospel as he recounts these various appearances of our Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared to people after his resurrection. And he notes that these appearances, especially to the apostles, are part of the gospel message which either Paul himself or the other apostles preached And the Corinthians received, as he says in verse 11, so we preach and so you received. These appearances that the Apostle Paul notes, uh, beginning in verse 5, serve as tangible physical proof that Christ Jesus, in fact, overcame death. His resurrection was not just a spiritual resurrection where he lives on in our hearts or lives on in the life of the church. They were not hallucinations or uh, dreams or visions that people had, but tangible, physical appearances that the Lord Jesus did over the course of 40 days prior to his ascension, as Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1. You'll recount back in Luke 24, Jesus urged urged his apostles to, to to feel him. He said, feel me, handle me. I'm not a spirit. I have flesh and bone." And then in order to confirm even more that he was physically present with them, he said, do you have anything to eat? Well, these uh, uh, appearances that the Apostle Paul lists here, of course, is not an exhaustive list. We can read of other appearances uh, in the Gospels as well as in Acts chapter 1. And yet this list, while not exhaustive, is a selective list to prove a particular point, to show how this is a continuation of the summary of the good news of salvation as God works salvation through Christ Jesus, his son. I've mentioned that these appearances serve as tangible proof that Christ, in fact, had been raised. And I think that's clearest uh, when Paul mentions in verse 6 that at one time, Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers. As Paul includes this uh, appearance, his implicit point is that he is offering here undeniable evidence for the skeptics. Contrary to popular belief today, the people living in the first century were not ignorant, naive, pre-scientific people who would believe anything and everything you told them. The uniform testimony of the Gospels is that they were doubters. They were skeptics. They didn't immediately embrace the fact that Christ was raised, but needed to, be proved, needed to have it physically proved unto them time and time again. And here was a, an instance where this happened to over 500 people, which Paul says the majority of which are still alive. The implicit invitation here is that if you have any doubts, you can search these people out. You can find them. You can interview them. You can see if their stories line up to confirm that, in fact, Christ had been raised. Well, backing up to verse 5, we read of the first person that Christ appeared to, that Paul lists here, is that he appeared to Cephas. This is another name for Peter, the Aramaic version of the Greek word Petros. 
And Paul mentions him first, not because he was the first person that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. That honor goes to Mary Magdalene. But but he mentions Peter first because he appeared to Peter as the first of the apostles. You see, this appearance to Peter and to James and to Paul, the three men he lists by name, were not just appearances to, to, serve, uh, to prove that Christ had, in fact, been raised, but they were appearances of the risen Lord to commission these men to serve as witnesses to the resurrection, and it was their appointment as apostles to carry on the work of Christ Jesus. That's why we would include these appearances as a continuation of Paul's summary of the gospel Because Christ appearing to these men and his work through these men are a continuation of God's saving acts through Christ. That's why, for example, we confess in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church because Christ used these men as apostles to serve as the foundation of the church to continue his work in the formation of of not only the church, but also the writing of Scripture. I think we see that most clearly in the book of Acts, as Luke, uh, which, by the way, boys and girls, the book of Acts is basically Luke part two. It's the sequel to the gospel that we read. And he, he starts the book of Acts by describing how in the first book he wrote, that is the gospel of Luke, he summarized all the things that Jesus began to do and teach with the implicit point that the book of Acts records the things that Jesus continued to do through the apostles. And so while traditionally the book of Acts, if you look in your Bibles, the title would be the Acts of the Apostles, technically it should be the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles. And so that's, the, that's, that's why the Apostle Paul is not done summarizing the gospel here when he talks about these, the commission of Cephas, the commission of James, and, the, and finally the commission of Paul himself to serve as apostles so they might continue the saving acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something else to note here with the appearance of Peter being listed first. You see, the appearance of our Lord to Peter after his resurrection was not just a commission, but it was a restoration. It was an act of abounding grace on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you may recall where Peter was at spiritually after our Lord was crucified. You remember what he did the night in which he was arrested and and betrayed? Well, he denied his Lord three times. In Mark chapter 16, the angel appears to the women and, they, and he tells the women, he is not here, he has been raised just as he told you. But the angel then goes on to tell the women, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And many people wonder, well, why is the angel single out Peter from the rest of the disciples? Roman Catholics will suggest, well, because he was the Pope, he gets special status. No, I don't think that was the case. I think the reason why the angel is separating Peter from the rest of the disciples is because at that point, Peter was no longer a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had denied his Lord and Master. He had, been, he had separated himself from him as he swore oaths to God, calling upon himself curses as he says, I do not know the man. And so the fact that Jesus appeared 
to Peter himself, first of all, was a restoration. It brought Peter back into the fold. It restored him not only as an apostle, but primarily as a disciple, bringing him back. And so this is an example of God's grace appearing to this man. Well, then we read that he then appeared, after appearing to Peter, then he appeared to the twelve. And those of you who are uh, keenly aware of the gospel message, of the gospel story, you'll know that technically Jesus didn't appear to twelve men. Because after all, Judas, who was one of the twelve, is no longer part of the twelve. And you also know that Thomas, who later on will be known as Doubting Thomas, wasn't there that first time that Jesus appeared to them. And it was only later that he said, unless I can put my hands in, his, in, the, holes, uh, in, in the holes of his hands and the hole in the side, only then will I believe. And so why is it that, Peter, uh, that, that Paul says he appeared to the twelve? Well, the term the twelve became a stock phrase to refer uh, to those who had been with Jesus from his baptism all the way up to his ascension, who would serve as witnesses to the resurrection. Those who were specifically appointed to serve as, as those who would proclaim the truth, but as eyewitnesses, they would be able to proclaim the truths of the gospel. So this would include uh, Matthias, uh, Matthias, who later replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1. And the number 12 is significant, it's obvious, because it symbolizes the reconstitution of the people of God under the new covenant. And so, whereas in the old covenant, it was 12 tribes, in the new covenant, it's 12 apostles to show the continuation of the one people of God now under the new covenant. So that's why Paul can say he appeared to the 12, even though technically there was only 10 of them at the time. Well, next in verse 7, we read that he appeared to James. Now, this James is not the James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, who was part of the 12, who uh, was actually martyred early on in the history of the church. Actually, it was martyred before Paul even wrote this letter to the Corinthians. But no, this is James, the brother of the Lord, as Paul calls him in Galatians chapter 1, uh, the, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, but also the natural son of Joseph. This James is likely the same guy who authored the book of James that we find in our New Testament canon and is the man who would serve as a pillar in the Jerusalem church. Now, if the appearance to Peter of our Lord after his resurrection was a, sign of, was, a, was a sign of his grace to Peter because Peter was not a disciple, he had denied his Lord. So it is with the appearance of Jesus to his half-brother James, since we're told in the New Testament that Jesus' brothers actually did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. We're told that in John chapter 7, as, as his brothers are actually mocking Jesus, taunting him, saying, are you going to go up to Jerusalem now and, and, and make yourself known? And John tells us his brothers did not believe in him. It must have been difficult to have Jesus as an older brother. I had an older sister, but you know, we all know uh, sometimes parents saying, why can't you be like your older brother? But we know that Jesus' family did not immediately embrace him because it's difficult to embrace someone you know so closely. Even his own hometown, the people of Nazareth, said, we know this guy. Isn't this the son of Mary and, and 
Joseph, don't we know his brothers and sisters? And Jesus says the prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And that is especially true even in his own house. In Mark chapter 3, we are told that they said they thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. And they were mocking him. And yet after he was crucified and after he was raised, he appeared to James. And we see that James became a changed man as he appears in the the book of Acts, leading the Jerusalem church. And as uh, uh, as as he writes in his epistle, he calls himself not the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just James, but all the other half-brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ came to faith in Christ and became ministers of the gospel. Uh, Another one of the brothers is likely Jude, the author of that small book just before uh, the book of Revelation in our New Testament canon. And Paul himself mentions the brothers of our Lord in chapter 9 as those who go about proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And so we see Jesus having appeared to Peter. We see him appearing to James and then to all of the apostles. And then we see Paul say in verse 8, last of all. Now, it's clear that Paul is composing a list of appearances that follow in chronological order. He first appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then to James, then to all the apostles. And then he gets to the point where he says, last. Now, if somebody's composing a list and then they say last, what they mean is that they're the last. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus, or that that, uh, Paul himself was the last person that Jesus Christ as the risen Lord appeared to in the sense of appearing to him to appoint him as an apostle. So very clearly, Paul is saying here that he is the last of the apostles. And so those polite young men who walk around your neighborhood in short sleeve white shirts and ties with name tags, they're wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ did not appear to Joseph Smith. He did not appear to anyone today who claims to be an apostle because Paul very clearly says, no, I am the last. I am the last of the apostles, the last of the ones that Jesus Christ appeared to. And if Christ's appearances to Peter and to James were a testament of his sovereign grace, how much more his appearing to Paul, who at the time was known as Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, the one who was persecuting the church, the one who's described in Acts chapter 9 as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. When our Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul describes this appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to him as to one who was untimely born. It's an interesting word in the Greek, and it's literally translated here. It literally means one who's born out of time. And yet, I think that literal translation can maybe uh, be confused. You see, Paul isn't lamenting the fact that he was born too late. Like those people who were born in the late 50s who, you know, lament the fact that they were on the tail end of the baby boomers and they couldn't go to college in the 60s. They missed all the fun. No, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying he was born too late. Uh, In Galatians chapter 1, he recognizes that the Lord's hand was in his life from the very womb. 
But no, I think when he uses this term as to one who is untimely born, this word typically refers to a premature baby or even a stillborn child or even an aborted fetus, some, some child that is born before the, the, the proper uh, time of gestation. And so more often than not, it is a stillborn baby that Paul's referring to himself as. Here he compares his pre-conversion state, the time when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, persecuting the church out of zeal. He compares himself to a helpless or even perhaps more accurately, a lifeless baby. But you see, the God who brings life out of death, and here we're already getting echoes of the resurrection, of God's resurrection power. Paul says, I was like a dead, stillborn fetus, and yet God took me, a lifeless thing, and gave me life, and, and set me up on my feet, and commissioned him to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of Paul's conversion story on the road to Damascus as a typical uh, conversion, and it, it was that. I mean, he definitely was converted to Christianity, but more importantly, it wasn't just a conversion, it was a commission to serve as an apostle. Years later, uh, uh, Paul will repeat the words that Jesus Christ said to him on the road to Damascus. He said, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen. I am sending you to your own people and to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by by faith in me. You see, Paul was a chosen instrument of the Lord to carry his name before the world and to continue that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all that Jesus Christ did on earth, if it wasn't for the apostle Paul, his saving acts would not be complete. That was his privilege as an apostle to continue to fill up in his body what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ, as he says in the book of Colossians. It's a special role to continue that saving work of God through Jesus Christ, and that's why this is a continuation of the summary of the Gospels. But there's something more to it as well. For Paul is not only the last of the apostles, but as he says in verse 9, he is least of the apostles. Last, but also least, because he persecuted the church. And so we see, once again, not only was Paul an instrument to proclaim the gospel message, but he was, uh, his own life was a picture of the gospel as God displayed his grace through his life. Notice how he mentioned, he, he talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as he talks to his his uh, protege, Timothy, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom 
I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Jesus could have chosen angels to proclaim the gospel of salvation. Perfect angels who have never sinned and never would sin. And yet instead, in his infinite wisdom, he chose sinners. And not just any sinner, but as Paul says, the chief of sinners. And this is not false humility. Paul really meant it when he said, I am the foremost of sinners because I persecuted the church. I persecuted the Lord himself. And yet in his example, as a, as, as a display of Christ's perfect patience, He chose Paul as an apostle and had him proclaim the truth so that others who believe in Jesus Christ might say, well, if he did it for Paul, he could also do it for me. While the chief of sinners and the least of the apostles, nevertheless, Paul's life was a testament to divine grace. And so that's why he says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Now, you'll notice that he says, I am what I am, not I am who I am. Paul has his role as an apostle in mind, not his own personal sanctification. In other words, he's not boasting. He's not saying, oh, look how holy I am. No, he's saying, look what Christ has done for me in making me as an apostle, giving me this grace. He says, I received this grace not in vain. That is, not for nothing. Christ didn't waste his grace in Paul. It wasn't fruitless. But we can stand back and be amazed at the work that the Apostle Paul was able to accomplish in just about two decades. He brought the gospel to almost the whole known world at the time. About two years from the writing of this letter, he could write to the Romans in Romans chapter 15, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to to Illyricum, which is modern-day Croatia, just across from the boot of Italy, he's writing to them, I have, uh, from from Jerusalem all the way to there, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. What an amazing statement that Paul could say after just two decades of ministering, he could say from Jerusalem all the way, basically right up until Italy, he's fulfilled the gospel. And so he goes on to tell the Romans, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm making my way to Rome, but I'm not going to stay there because the gospel's already reached Rome. I'm planning on going on to Spain to proclaim the gospel where it hadn't been heard before. What a remarkable thing that the Lord was able to accomplish through this man. And as he can write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in all honesty, he could say, I worked harder than any of them. That is, any of the other apostles. Not combined, but individually, Paul could say, I worked harder than any of them. Keep in mind that the apostle Paul, for the most part, refused to uh, receive financial compensation from the churches. Uh, throughout the day, he worked with his hands, building tents, and, and at night, he proclaimed the truth. And so this guy worked himself 
to the bone. But he did it all for the sake of the gospel. And yet he could say in all humility, well, actually, it wasn't I. It's not me. It's the grace of God. It is the grace of God that is with me. So again, he's not bragging. He's not touting his accomplishments. He is magnifying the grace of God, which was shown to and through him as an apostle of Christ. The commissioning of the apostles and their work is a continuation of the saving acts of God through Christ Jesus. As Christ appeared to these men, commissioned them, and then set them forth to proclaim the gospel. And so that's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of the summary of the gospel message, he can say, whether it was, the, whether it, whether it was them, that is the other apostles, or I myself, so we preach. Perhaps better translated as it is in the NIV, this is what we preach. You see, the summary of the gospel that he's been summarizing, this is the message that we preach, and this is the message which you, which you received. So whether it was Peter, who out of cowardice denied his Lord even to the little girl standing by the fire when Christ was arrested, or whether it was James, who was faithless, who mocked his older brother, not believing that he was the Messiah, or Paul, who was breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, whether it was any of those men. The message of God's abounding grace for the chief of sinners remains the same. And that's the message that reverberates, that continues to be proclaimed even today. And may God grant to us faith to embrace all that is promised to us in the gospel. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you continued your work, your life, your death, your resurrection, but also the proclamation of that message through these men who were named apostles. Thank you, Lord, that even in their lives we see a testament of your grace as you were able to take these men who were feeble and frail and sinful and yet nevertheless make them as pillars in your church. And we thank you that we have their words of salvation that they faithfully proclaimed and that those words continue to go forth through the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to conform us more and more into your image and fill our hearts with gratitude for all the grace that you have worked in our life. And we ask this in your name. Amen.